Well, if you're here last week, you know that we are hitting pause. We're doing something new at OGC. We're hitting pause every, for two weeks, probably the second and third week, Lord willing, every January to do a short series called As in Heaven. Jesus told us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So last week, we, we looked at that prayer, we broke it down. This week, we're going to go all the way back to Genesis 1 to look at, I don't think it would be an overstatement to say one of the most revolutionary, if not the most revolutionary idea that has ever been introduced into humanity. And that idea is that we are made in the image of God. That changes everything. So I would love to ask you to stand as I read this passage and we have an eye on this repetition where we are seeing again and again that we are made in the image of God. I'm going to start at, in verse 24 of chapter 1 and read through verse 31. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that he has, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Probably about two years ago, uh, Angela and I gathered our children together in a home and we wanted to let them know what you do in case there's a a fire in our house. And and we were going through all all the procedures and I thought things were going pretty well. And then a, a little hand went up and they said, but but daddy, what if I can't get out of the house? I said, well, okay, there's, there's a plan for that. You go to your window in your room and you, and you, you go and you, you camp out and we'll know that's where we come to find you. We'll get you. Just, just get to the door if you can't, get to the window. And then the little hand went up and said, but what if you could only save one of us? And then it just started to like spiral out of control and they started making their cases like why they should be the one that that I pick, that I go in and I save. And I was like, listen, everybody be quiet, all right? If you follow the instructions, everybody's getting saved. And then another little hand went up and said, but but the dog, Sturkey, can't follow directions. What about the dog? And I said, listen, if I get one pass through this house, the dog is nowhere on my radar. (laughs) 
And I wish you could see, like, there was not only confusion and concern, there was disgust on the face of my children. How could I dare ignore the dog in the event of a fire? And it's not just because they're my children, all right? I mean, I would choose any human being over a dog as much as we love our dog. And I hope you would choose me over your dog. I don't care if you're, you have a show dog, if it is the most skilled search and rescue dog in the world. Human beings inherently have more value than the created order because we were given something special. We were made in the image of God. And this forever separates us from the rest of creation. So I want to look at this passage and I just, I just want to flesh this thing out. I want to just simply look at what, what is the Imago Dei. That's what we call made in the image of God, the Imago Dei. What is it? What has happened to it? And what responsibilities do we uniquely bear as Christians? Because we believe deeply that if we as humanity really understand what it means to be made in the image of God, then humanity will flourish and we will tangibly see God's will being done on earth in Orlando as it is in heaven. So let's dive in. What is the Imago Dei? All right, well, first let me say what it's not. Okay, it doesn't mean that we are the image of God. That, that doesn't mean, that's not what we're saying here. We don't look in the mirror and see gods. <laughs> you know, this doesn't confirm the new, age, uh, the new age idea that we're inherently all gods. That's not what's going on. There is only one God and he has an image and we are made in that image. We are made according to that image. So uh, my, my kids have this unique habit of wanting snow globes for everywhere that we go wherever we live or travel they, they want to get a snow globe and so I, Angela and I were moving some dressers around the, the house rearranging things and I opened a dresser that we don't use a lot and it, the top drawers kind of become a junk drawer and I pulled out one of their snow globes it was of the Coliseum and of course like it's it's small the Coliseum's big it's in Orlando the Coliseum's in Rome it's surrounded by water that's not the Coliseum this is made of plastic the Coliseum is made of rock and mar- originally marble and so th- there's it's very different than the Colosseum, but it bears enough of the real thing to understand the image that it's meant to communicate and in the same way we as humanity we bear something we were designed to communicate something about the maker in whose image we were made and so what is that thing you know what what is it that makes us in his image is it that we have a soul Is it that we're self-aware? I mean, I think those could be, you know, maybe a part of it, but we have to think in Genesis chapter one, two chapters later, we have Satan, the serpent who comes in and he seems to be self-aware and he seems to have some sort of a soul and he's not made in the image of God. So it has to be something more than simply being aware and having a soul. And so here's the best I can do at defining what it means that we're made in the image of God. What is this thing that we call the Imago Dei? The Imago Dei is the thing in us that makes God love us and enables us to love. The thing in us that makes God love us and enables us to love. And I know you think your dog loves you. (laughs) And I know you've seen the videos of the porpoise, you know, saving the drowning man, but that's not love, that's instinct. Maybe it's really good instinct, but love is different. Love 
It causes us to want to sacrifice for other people. Even when they don't deserve it, even when it doesn't immediately benefit us, that's something totally different than the rest of the created order. And there are some explicit and implicit responsibilities that come with being made in the image of God. I'm going to identify an explicit one here that's in the text, and then at the end of the message, I'm going to come back to some implicit ones. But the explicit one that we see really clearly is this word that's repeated three times, dominion. Dominion was given to the people made in God's image. He trusted us to steward creation, to see that his justice and his mercy and his compassion is reflected everywhere on this earth. Look at verses, let's do 26 and 28. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on this earth. I heard somewhere, I wish I could cite it, I don't know where it came from, but someone said that us being handed dominion, it's not like being handed keys to a tractor and saying drive. It's like being handed a scepter to hold and saying rule. That's your job, rule. We're to rule as, the term is vice regent. You know, if, if there are any Trekkies or Star Wars fans out there, Viceroy would work as well. It means that you rule with the authority of another. So that's what we were created to do and to be, to be God's vice regents, to rule with his authority, to see that his wisdom and compassion and mercy and justice and love fills the earth. And then you have this huge break in the formula of creation. For the first five days, God says, behold, it is good. And then he makes man in his own image. And what does he say? It is very good. So what happened? I mean, you look look at all this order and creation and order and joy and love and dominion in Genesis 1. And we look out at this world and that's not what I see. So what has happened to the Imago Dei? I mean, I look around at people and I, I don't, you know, if I, as I look at humanity, God-like is not the first words that are probably going to come to my mind. You know, love is not the way that I would characterize humanity. I mean, we see people, we don't see people stewarding and subduing creation. We see people either destroying creation or worshiping creation. And let's be honest, it's not like creation looks like they're all that excited to be subdued and ruled. (laughs) Last night, I was watching a YouTube video with two of my children called When Animals Attack. (laughs) And the opening scene had this panda bear, and and there was a man standing precariously close to the bars, and I hit pause, and I said, what do y'all think is going to happen? One of my kids said, Dad, it's called When Animals Attack. (laughs) We we know what's going to happen. And so I hit play, and we watch this panda bear reach out, grab this man, and try to pull him inside his cage. And all the people on the outside are trying to pull this man back. And then the next video was of a, about an eight-point buck going after a hunter and hitting him with his front hooves. And I'll be honest, at some point, I've, I've started to pull for the deer. <laughs> but this is, this is not a creation that wants to be subdued and wants to be ruled. So how do we match what we see in Genesis 1 to what we experience today? What happened? Sin happened. Sin came into this world. 
Sin came in this world when we decided we don't want to be vice regents. We want to be the king. We want to make the rules. We want to do things the way we want to do it. And when that happened, the image of God, the imago Dei on every single human being was marred almost beyond recognition. And the consequences of our sin, it extended into every crevice of the creation that we were designed to steward and have dominion over. Pandas shouldn't attack people. Children shouldn't rebel against their parents. Loved ones shouldn't die. Our bodies shouldn't get sick. Rulers should not abuse the people that they're set there to protect. Marriages shouldn't fall apart. Children shouldn't be born with special needs. Women and children should not be subjected to all that they're subjected to in the pornography and the sex trafficking industry. People should not be oppressed because of the color of their skin. But all of these things are true in the world that we live in because sin has entered this world. And we have an enemy who can't touch God. Satan can't touch God. So what does he do? He goes after the next closest thing. He wants to mar those who bear his image, those who are here to give him glory. And I talked a little bit last week about statues because we were in Cuba two, years, two weeks ago with our team there. And, uh, and statues in kingdoms are, they're there to proclaim the king, right? They're there so you know who the king is. And if I went around Havana and I began to deface all the statues of Fidel Castro, what would happen to me? I'd probably disappear. <laughs> That's a heinous offense in that country because it, it threatens the authority of the king on that island. And that's exactly what Satan has been trying to do since the beginning of time to us. He wants to mar and to keep the image of God marred on all of those who threaten him by having the ability to proclaim glory to the one true king. So here's my question. When this happens, when we as humanity, we have this image that's been marred We are abnormal, we are sick, we are now a spiritually dead human being. This is what we call a sinner. We are now all sinners. When that happens, do we still bear the image of God? When it's marred beyond recognition, are we still image bearers? And the answer is absolutely yes. I mean, you think think about a light bulb. If I threw a light bulb on the ground and I stomped on this light bulb, at the end of the day, even if you can't recognize what it is, is it still a light bulb? Yes. Was it designed with a purpose? Yes, even though it's lost its ability to carry out that purpose, it can no longer shine the way that it was intended, but it's still a light bulb. And then you take that illustration and you apply it to us and it's even worse because not only do we have a purpose that we can't carry out, we now forget that we even had a purpose in the first place. And if we don't believe that we have a purpose, How can we think anybody else has a purpose and we no longer treat other human beings as the image of God that they were designed to fulfill? A great Old Testament illustration of this is King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He forgets he's king, he thinks he's a beast and he goes and he roams the field as a beast on all all fours, eating the grass. A king who thinks he's a beast. This is what sin does to the image bearers of God. So how is our purpose restored? And I I love 
this question because this is fundamentally what makes Christianity different than every other worldview out there. I don't care if it's overtly religious, or religious, overtly secular, because every other worldview largely acknowledges that there's a problem. There's a problem in the world. They might disagree on how that problem came about, but all of them, when you reduce their worldview down to its nuts and bolts, they have the same solution to the problems of the world, and it's this. Try harder. Try harder. Be more disciplined. Be more moral. Build more technology. I mean, so if it's a, it's a non-Christian religious worldview, they would say, be more moral, be more disciplined, try and help others, and it'll work out better for you in the next life. The, the secular world would say, well, let's, let's help people by supporting the poor, building schools, building more technology, and then maybe it'll get better in this life for us, but certainly for our kids and grandkids. And for me, that just doesn't do it. When you look at the problems in this world and the, the health problems and the relational problems and the natural disasters, try harder, it just fundamentally misses the mark for me. I mean, I feel like we're looking at a bombed out building and our, our, our assessment is, a good coat of paint should do the trick. I, it, it, the, the problem is deeper. The foundation needs to be reinforced. And that is what Jesus comes to do. Jesus doesn't come and say, try harder. He comes to give us a new foundation. Because Jesus, the perfect image of God, came here functionally to trade images with us. That's how this problem is solved. He had an unscarred image. He could perfectly love. He represented God in the ways that we were supposed to. And he allowed his image to be marred on the cross and then beyond recognition when he took on the wrath of God for our desire to be king instead of vice regent. And because he did this now, we can begin the process of being conformed into the image that we were designed to bear. Because when we believe, we receive the Holy Spirit. He begins at a heart level to change us. And one day, the promise is that when he starts that, pro- that process, he will finish it and the image will be restored. This is why John writes in 1 John 3, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what will be has, yet, has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This is the promise of Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? Be conformed into the image of his son. The mission of Jesus Christ is to come back and glorify the Godhead by restoring all those who bear his image. And, and when I say bear his image and restore his image, I'm not simply talking about the image of Jesus Christ who walked this earth for 33 years. I'm talking about Jesus Christ at the transfiguration. I'm talking about the resurrected Jesus Christ who appeared and disappeared and walked through walls and was never in the least threatened or concerned about sin and sinning. That's the image that we're being conformed into. And I know there are people out there who hear something like that and, and it feels naively fantastic. It feels fairy ish And Orlando is the sixth most de-churched city in the United States. So that means that we have a lot of people who used to go to church and now they don't. More than all but five other cities in the world. And as I talk to my de-churched friends, there are about three narratives that I, that I hear from them on a consistent basis. And one of them goes something like this. 
I grew up in church, but then I went off to school. Then I, 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 my mind was opened, I was exposed to other worldviews, and, lo- and I no longer believe the Bible. That, that's a really common narrative that I hear. And for me, well, first, I think it's an indictment on the church they grew up in, large, a lot of them, but for me, it's funny because my experience was the exact opposite. <laughs> when I was growing up in high school and, and in college, I was functionally a pluralist. I was what these de-church people are now. I was in the English department at FSU reading Nietzsche and Marx. But when I looked at all these different worldviews, really only one seemed to solve the problem. Only one was intellectually satisfying, and that was the message of the Bible. The gospel of Jesus Christ was the only one that intellectually connected with the deep-rooted, deep-seated problems of this world. And so like many people, my faith began out of logic. This makes sense. But now it continues through experience. Because the Holy Spirit has come inside of me and even though, my goodness, he has a ton of work to do to conform me to that image, he's already done so much that I am forever convinced. So if all of that is true, where does it leave us now? For those of us who believe in Jesus Christ and we have embraced our purpose as image bearers and understand that everyone else in this world, Christian or not, also are image bearers of the God. Where does that leave us? These are the implicit responsibilities I want to talk about. The implicit responsibilities of being an image bearer of God. And I think it would be helpful to think about what were the immediate reactions you think to the people who first heard these words? Okay, the original audience here in mind, which we, we, would, we would largely agree, let's just say recently escaped Israelites from the slavery in Egypt. How, how would these words, you were made in the image of God, affect them? And it's helpful to know that made in the image of God would not have been a new term for them. This was a term that Pharaoh, we, we have documentation, he used over and over. He, he said he was made in the image of God. Nobody else, just Pharaoh. And that was the way that he would control the people, lord over them, justify having these people as slaves, killing whoever he wants to. And now you have God coming to the Israelites and saying, you're all made in my image. I mean, it's really important that we just sit there for a minute. You're made in the image of God. All you Israelites, you've heard one thing for 400 years, and now I'm bringing you the truth. I mean, can you imagine the sense of value and validation and importance that would have welled up inside them? Our goal as Christians, our responsibility, is that every human being would feel that value that validation and that importance by understanding who they're made in the image of and what their real purpose is in this life. And admittedly, this is where we get to the uncomfortable part of the sermon because embracing the fact that all, all humans are created in God's image, that affects every area of our life. And, and most of those areas are very complex. They're very emotional I mean, it, it affects special needs. It affects pornography and the sex trafficking. It affects children without parents. It affects mental illness. It affects basic ed- issues like poverty and literacy and education. And my goodness, it gets really confusing when you start talking about sexual ethics. It affects everything. But because I only have a little bit of time, I want to camp out in two main areas, life and race. 
those are the ways I'm going to flesh out our implicit responsibility as being image bearers of the God of the universe. So first, life. Because we believe that every human being is made in the image of God, we should be the greatest champions of the right to live of anybody on this earth. And on the podcast uh, this week, we had the real privilege of interviewing Vicki Matthews. Many of you know who Vicki Matthews is. She is the executive director of Women's Choices Clinic. And she was telling us her story and literally had every one of us in the room weeping hearing her story. She, like so many young women, found herself with an unwanted pregnancy in her early 20s. And she didn't know where to go. She didn't know what to do. And she had just heard about Planned Parenthood. So she went and saw Planned Parenthood and they, they convinced her, your greatest hope is to terminate this pregnancy. And that's what she did. And then she began to have to really wrestle with all the emotions that come after having been a part of, of an abortion. Statistically speaking, these are emotions that I know, I know a lot of you know firsthand, both men and women. And she has devoted her life to being able to come alongside young women and even men and and showing them that there is hope. You can be a parent, not just you can be a parent, but you could be a great parent. And we're here and we're going to help you, but more than anything, this baby inside you, even though you didn't want it, This is a human being who represents the image of God. And because that's true, this baby is a blessing. And if I stopped right there, that would be enough reason for all of us to pray for and support her ministry. But what she's doing goes even beyond that. She's unique because most, most is strong, much of the pro-life movement, it simply exists to save the life of babies. All right, now it sounds weird, simple. I mean, that's a big cause. We'd be in it either way. But what Vicky realizes is there are multiple image bearers in this, in this equation here. It's not just the baby, it's the mom. And in some cases, it's the dad. And she wants to come alongside all of them. And she walks with these women down whatever path they go. For, for many of them, more than half the women who come in, that path is going to be one of learning how to be a mom when you didn't expect to be a mom. But for some of those who don't take her advice and they do have an abortion and they come back with regret, she walks with them. She loves them and points them to the only hope that any of us have, which is Jesus Christ. She doesn't punt these people after, after the point of decision. That's what Planned Parenthood does. She loves them and walks with them. And so on the podcast, we talked a good bit about the fact that we have an abortion clinic across the street. You could walk to an abortion clinic in about five minutes from here. And our hope is that in Orlando, young women with unplanned and unwanted pregnancies would be so loved by the church that there would be no fear. They would know they were gonna make it. They would know they would not be scorned or or shunned. They would know that they could even still get to a place where they can have a job and support the family. If there was not... If there weren't that kind of fear, there's no market for that place. They would just have to close. Whether we can change the laws or not, it would have to close because they couldn't pay the bills. And my prayer is that we would see that happen during my tenure as pastor at Orlando Grace Church. And I think it can happen if we're serious about what it means to be made in the image of God. So that's life. Secondly, race. Many of you, I'm sure, if you... 
grew up going to school, which is all of us, you've heard of the Dred Scott case. In 1857, there was a slave that was suing the U.S. government for his freedom. His, his name was Dred Scott, which is why it's named the Dred Scott case. And the Supreme Court shot it down seven to two, and I'm going to read you directly from their report. And if there are words that feel archaic, it's because I'm reading from the direct 1857 report. Supreme Court. A Negro whose ancestors were imported into the U.S. and sold as slaves, whether enslaved or free, could not be an American citizen and therefore has no standing to sue in federal court. So they're not only saying you can't have your freedom, they're saying you don't even have the right to enter this room and ask for it because you're not white. But remember, it was seven to two. There were two dissenting justices. And as is custom, the dissenting justices write a report, and one's name was John McLean. And John McLean, in his dissent, wrote this, but this man bears the impress of our maker. How can you deny him these fundamental privileges when he bears the impress of our maker? He got it. He understood it. And at this point, I could probably deliver some rah-rah message that, you know, if, if, we, were, if we were there 150 years ago, we would have been with, with McLean. Of course, the answer is yes, because it's so easy to look back at the sins of our forefathers and see them. It's much harder to see our sins currently. I don't think there's any way that we can debate the fact that there are systems and structures that have existed in our lifetime that systematically oppress people of color. I don't think you can deny that. I mean, I know bankers here in Orlando who worked for the biggest name banks that you would all know. And they would say, yeah, in the 70s, I was not allowed to give business and home loans to black people. Wasn't allowed. The bank would, would fire me if I did that. And, and there were some that were allowed, but they were only allowed to give loans, home loans to black people in certain neighborhoods west of I-4. That's why we have Division Avenue. That divided the blacks and the whites. That's why our skyline is on one side of I-4. You, they could only have loans to, for houses in this area where they would buy houses that would never appreciate the way that white neighborhoods would. And then you, you see systems in education. When, when integration came in, which we're all very thankful for, it was a good thing, but six hours later, we had our first private school. And I'm not against private school. If my kids go to private school, I'm just saying that the people who had influence at the time chose to avoid the problem rather than address the problem. And so now, by God's grace, yes, things are different than they were 30, 40, 50 years ago, but what we're left with is the reality that the average white person has seven times the accumulated wealth than the average black person. And that was the most conservative number I could find. It came from The Economist magazine. Many people would put it 10, 12, 13 times the accumulated wealth because my ancestors got 40 acres and a mule. My grandparents and parents could get business loans and home loans. I was able to go to, go to college for free. I, didn't, I don't have student debt. I'm, my parents, our parents were able to help us in certain ways get off our feet. That is a blessing that we receive that people of color largely did not receive. There are behaviors and structures that contribute to this problem. And if we are serious about being made in the image of God and that, that everybody else around us is also made in that image, then we're going to be serious about being a part of the solution. And it is going to be complex. It's going to be confusing. It's going to be emotional. I'm not trying to oversimplify it. I'm just simply saying that we should care. We should engage and we should pray. Because remember, the Imago Dei issue is a love issue at its core. So if we're not loving 
all those people who are made in God's image and wanting them to communicate and exude the glory of God that they were designed to, then, then we have a love issue and we may need to have to check whether it is that we're being loved by God in the way that allows us to go out and love others sacrificially. And I've said it twice now. I'm going to say it a third time. This isn't easy. Being a Christian is not easy. Carrying this torch is not easy. And it's only getting harder as our culture changes. And again, with the whole world of sexual ethics, it's getting harder. This is a huge burden to bear. Angela and I, um, we're on season two of The Crown. And I'm not endorsing it because there are some, certainly some fast-forward moments. <laughs> but it's fascinating to me to think about Queen Elizabeth when she took on that crown. She was 25. She, was, she didn't have the age or the experience really to go and, and rule in a male-dominated society. And then you think about what all she was stepping into. She, had to, she was ruling when they had to rebuild Europe. Uh, nuclear devices were now in, in the world. The Cold War was starting. Uh, imperialism was collapsing. And this 25-year-old girl is stepping in there at this moment and receiving that kind of burden C.S. Lewis observed her coronation and I love what he wrote soon after about her coronation and, and he's saying it as a Brit and, and he's, he's communicating to Americans he says you know over here people did not get that fairy tale feeling about the coronation what impressed most who saw it was the fact that the queen herself appeared to be quite overwhelmed Hence, in the spectators, a feeling of, one hardly knows how to describe it, pity or misery. The pressing of that huge, heavy crown on that small, young head becomes a sort of symbol of the situation of humanity itself. Humanity called by God to be his vice-regent on earth, yet feeling so inadequate As if he said to us, in my infinite love, I shall lay upon the dust that you are glories and dangers and responsibilities beyond your understanding. Do you see what I mean? One has missed the whole point unless one feels that we have all been crowned and that that coronation is somehow, if splendid, a tragic splendor. coronation of that young girl and the overwhelming responsibilities that that brings onto her shoulders that's a picture of the Christian life we as Christians who have been coronated by the Holy Spirit and called into a mission that we could never even begin to accomplish without God's support and God's grace it is a tragic splendor it will be a hard life but it is a splendor and the question we need to leave asking ourselves is how are we going to steward that splendor we steward that splendor by seeing everyone around us as beautifully designed to be and reflect the image of God we should engage and listen and want to help restore these images we want to lift them out of the disgrace that many people find themselves in and ultimately we want them to believe in Jesus Christ and we want God to be honored as his image bearers increasingly reflect him because when that happens, thy kingdom is coming, thy will is happening in Orlando as in heaven. Let's pray.
God, we are so thankful. It isn't that we are ourselves more spiritual or wiser or smarter that we get to see you as the answer. You have sovereignly opened our eyes. We, we, don't even, we don't merit our eyes being opened, but you've opened them and you've called us and we believe and it is a splendor. But God, we know that just, just to sit and bask in what we get and not strive that others might experience it too, not just for their benefit, but for your glory, God, that would be a sin. And I pray that we would be compelled in every area to be conformed into your image, to walk with you, to, that we would more clearly represent our maker and that we would desire and long and be able to come alongside others to help them to do the same. We're so thankful and we pray this in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.